great to be with you all here. Now, you may think, uh, since we live in Las Vegas and your idea of Las Vegas is casinos and everything that goes along with that, that perhaps all of us from Las Vegas, uh, we live in tents by the casinos downtown. We do not. We are much like you in, in so many ways. Uh, we have our homes uh, up in uh, you know, suburban areas like you as well. But there are some differences uh, between Las Vegas and Ireland. I've noticed some differences. Uh, we have things in our cities called sidewalks, and that's where people walk, hence sidewalks. Um, you guys probably call them side parks because that's every, everyone parks their cars there. It's kind of, it's kind of different. Um, we also, we really appreciate our space uh, in America. Uh, you guys like to be very close together. Your roads are extremely narrow. I'm surprised we haven't pinballed down the, the streets and just hit every car and every window off of there as well. Um, you also have this thing coming out of the sky that we do not have in Las Vegas. What do you call it? Rain. Rain, rain that's right. Uh, we get literally four inches of rain per year. Uh, it's, it's a desert there. Uh, and then you, you have some phrases that are used quite different in the States. Uh, when the sun's out, gun's out, but you call it tops off? Tops off. Tops off in Vegas means something completely different as well. <laughs> and uh, one more word that I've learned that you guys like to use that is completely different in the States is crack. When you say crack here, it means one thing. You say crack in the States, it's a completely different thing. But anyway, there are some similarities we have as well, and that is Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so today we'll be taking a look at the Word of God in the selected text. And there's kind of a, a theme that comes from our text today uh, that I think Paul is addressing, that there is a lot of clutter uh, that the church in Corinth there had put around the, the cross. And, and we understand how clutter works. You use the same word we do, clutter, right? Like you have a lot of apps on your phone, it's all cluttered up and slowed down, or your computer, a lot of documents, there's clutter. I know you have garages out here, Garages are typically to park cars, but usually it's where we park all of our sports equipments and shoes and everything else in life that doesn't fit in the house, and so there's clutter. And so what we see from our text today is that there is quite a bit of, of clutter. Now, we as a church, we've gone through the book of 1 Corinthians as well, and as we look at this letter, we can see this letter was written to a very imperfect church, and we are just like the church in Corinth at Grace Point Church, and I would say you, the village as well, that we are a very imperfect church you and I belong to an imperfect church, but the good news for them and for us as well, we have a perfect Jesus who leads it. And he gathers imperfect people together to be his people on his mission for his glory, and that's for our good as well. Although the church is deeply flawed, we will admit we have a good and perfect Savior that we love. Now, as we go through 1 Corinthians this morning, I, I do have to say it is originally written uh, for Christians. Uh, but however, you may find yourself in here today uh, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. You've not submitted and surrendered your life and trusted Jesus. And all I ask for is this, that you would just give us your ear. Let the, let the Word of God speak to you today. There may be a lot of clutter around your life or a reason why you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe there's confusion when it comes to Jesus, or maybe there's family issues when it comes to Jesus, or maybe it's through poor or, or bad teachings about Jesus is a re reason why maybe you do not trust Jesus. But I I pray that you would just give an open ear uh, to the Word of God this morning and allow it to, to speak and to transform your life. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's where we will begin. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, now, Paul is telling us that the word of the cross, Jesus crucified for our sins, is either one of two things. It's either folly or madness or craziness, 
or it is power. There's really no, uh, no middle space when it comes to, to the Word of God. It's, it, no one is indifferent to the Word of God. You, you're, you may be ignorant of the Word of God, but you are not indifferent to the Word of God. Uh, it's much like, do you have cottage cheese here? Yeah, no one is kind of like, hey, you know, cottage cheese is okay. No one's indifferent to cottage cheese. You either love cottage cheese or you hate cottage cheese, right? It's the same way with Las Vegas. When it comes to Las Vegas, people either love Las Vegas, which is very, very few people, or they hate Las Vegas. There's no indifference to it. The same as when it comes to the Word of God here. No one is indifferent to, to the Word of God. Now, this verse, in light of the previous verses you guys went through last week, Paul was uh, addressing the issue of there were certain people within the church that had divided themselves over which teacher they liked the most. We would call that in the States, we call it groupies. Like, who I follow this person, that's my guy, or that's the person I follow. And it caused this division from them. And so Paul is using this word of the cross, this good news, this gospel, in order to unite them. Whenever we find division over our preferences, the way we draw one another back together in unity is always through the word of God, always through the good news of the gospel. In this verse right here, he used this phrase, for those who are perishing. Now, when he says this phrase, for those who are perishing, uh, he's not talking about fruits and vegetables. You know how like, after a while they can spoil and be no good. He's not even talking about death, how each and every one of us as humans will eventually die. When he speaks of perishing here, he's talking about eternal issues. He's talking about eternal separation from God. Perishing, he's, he's talking about hell. It's a very serious subject that he's going here. Now he's saying that this cross, this message, for some, although it's eternal, although it has huge ramifications in our life, he says, to some, it's folly. He's saying to some people when they hear this message of the cross, when they hear the gospel, it's folly, it's foolishness, it's moronic, it's stupid, it's pointless, it's for ignorant folk. But for those who are being saved, he says, it's power. The, the, the power to forgive your sin. The power to transform your life. The power to give you hope. The power to have eternal life with God forever. This is the cross. Now, why is Paul talking about this cross so much? Why is Paul really hammering down the cross here? Well, Paul wants to get them back to the cross. For some reason, for some way, they had kind of moved away from the cross or they had cluttered up the cross, and so he wants to bring them back to the cross. Now, for our generation in this time period, it's okay to talk about the cross. It's normal to talk about the cross, especially in the situation of the church. But in that day, the cross was kind of off limits. Most people didn't want to talk about the cross. Maybe in your situation or in, in this culture, when you're around people, it's not polite at times in America to not talk about sex, politics, or religion. People think it's not polite. Well, in this day, it was not polite, if you will, to talk about the cross. And so this is what Paul does. He starts to move in this. He goes all Old Testament on them. He, he quotes Isaiah in verse 19. He says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, keep in mind, at this point, he's making these global general statements, but now he's getting ready to really address the church. Now, in that time period, they would receive this letter from Paul. There would be people gathered here together, and they would unroll the, the scroll that this was written on, and they would have this read out amongst the church. And so people would be thinking about themselves as they were reading this text. Look in verse 20. He says this. Imagine this, if you will, being read out amongst the church. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has, God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached 
to save those who believe. Now, why is he saying this? Well, in that time period in the culture, um, the thing that was most obsessed about, the thing that people prided the most was wisdom and rhetoric. And I believe Paul's addressing the church because they had gotten sidetracked about wisdom and rhetoric. They wanted the cross, they wanted the gospel to be, have so much flair to it. They wanted to be, have a lot of pomp and a lot of, they wanted a lot of clutter around this, this message of the gospel. And they had been attempting to abandon the simplicity and the reality of the cross and wanted something more, wanted something deeper, wanted something better, something a little bit more dressed up. And they had recognized something true of the cross and it's this. There's nothing particularly eloquent or attractive about the message of the cross. The cross is not immediately philosophically compelling. Paul is saying this. It may seem intelligent, wise, flashy, and so forth, but it is power, powerless. The wisdom of the world is what he's talking about. That, that is, it seems like it's powerful. He's like, there's no power in the wisdom of the world. The, the only way we have power is through the cross. He's pointing to this fact that even he says that we preach to save those who believe that you cannot know God outside of the cross. Now, he does call it this, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe, the folly of the cross. Have you ever stopped and thought about how um, counterintuitive, how countercultural uh, the message of the gospel really is? Slow down and think about the mechanics of the gospel. That God created everything out of nothing. And that God created man and later on woman and, and that those two were allowed to eat anything and have everything they wanted and yet God gave them one rule. Just one, you had, you had one job, Adam and Eve, one rule. He says, don't eat of this one tree. And what they do? They ate of the tree. And, and the Bible explains to us that now because of them, sin has entered all of humanity. And then we see the Old Testament open up. And we see that there's these promises, that God makes these promises. That there will be one who will come who will abolish, one who will come who will crush, crush sin. And it promises about this one who will come. And for thousands of years, times go on. Then all of a sudden, this one who comes, born of a virgin in a nowhere named town. We call it, um, we call it the sticks. You guys have that language here? The, like out in the country. That this one who will come, and he will be born of a virgin, which is, that's different, Right? That, that's, that's kind of some different language there. And that he would live life perfectly. Not once did this man sin whatsoever. Not once did he sin with his eyes, with his mouth, with his mind, with his, his motives, with his intentions. That's kind of otherworldly to us. We understand how we sin. We understand how the world sins. But this one who would come, he would not sin. And by the way, he's fully man and fully God. He's not 50% man, 50% God. He's fully man and fully God. And then he would go completely innocent and die on a cross as a criminal, that he would hang naked and bare before the world, that he would die. And that if you place your trust in that, in that work right there, that you can be saved. Well, the gospel goes on to say that three days later, he came back to life, and then for 40 days, he roamed around the world. Over 500 people saw him, and then after that 40 days, he ascended into heaven. Imagine a child with a hot air balloon, and it goes up into the air. He ascended into heaven. Now, the Bible tells us he sits at the right hand of the Father, and that one day he will part the clouds, and he will arrive on a horse in the sky. Do, do, you, do you hear the folly of the gospel? I mean, sometimes we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that. And we do believe that. Don't get me wrong. But think about the mechanics of the gospel. To, to an unbelieving world out there, well, that's just madness. That's like, that, that doesn't make 
God creating out of nothing, one man dying for the sins of the world, one man coming back to life, one man ascending to heaven, one man coming back on a horse in the sky. This is what we believe of the gospel. See, our only hope, our only way we find life and identity and value and purpose, the only way we have this community called the church, the only way we have any of that, the Bible says it's by putting our faith and trust in that message alone, in that Savior. Now, to the modern mind, for sure, they can blow holes in that all day long. They can say, wait a minute, what about this, what about that? But by faith, we believe this, this good news, right? Are you with me? Okay, we, we believe this good news. But they had a hard time hearing this. They, they wanted something more. Look at verse 22. What else did they want? In verse 22, it says, For the Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. Now, let's talk about the Jews first. A crucified Jesus was offensive to an unbelieving Jew and nonsensical to an unbelieving Greek. Think about that. It's offensive to the unbelieving Jew and nonsensical to the unbelieving Greek. So why is that? Well, the Jews, they wanted signs. And what they were wanting was they wanted Jesus, they wanted God on their terms, not God's terms. They, they wanted God their way. They wanted God to meet all their demands, all their expectations. And, and I believe from this text, their demands and their expectations, that's what started to begin to cloud their view of, of, of the cross, of this message of the gospel. It begins to clutter up their minds when it comes to the gospel. Why is that? Well, they were waiting for this, this one called the Messiah. Messiah is an Old Testament term. It means the one of God who will come and fulfill all the promises of God. That's what Messiah means. And so they've been waiting for this Messiah. But all of a sudden they think perhaps Jesus is the Messiah. Perhaps Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And then he goes and dies on a cross. Now for a Jewish mind, that, that can't be our Messiah. Well, why is that? We'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 21. When you go back to the Old Testament, it says this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, you hanging basically on a cross, his body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Now watch this. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Basically saying the hanged man has been damned by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And in their minds, how, how could our Messiah, how could he be, be crucified? For us, for the Jews, they, they would think, no, no, our Messiah is going to come, and he's going to be a king, and he's going to set up his kingdom. And at the time, we're under the evil Roman Empire. We're going to thwart the evil Roman Empire because our Messiah, our king, is going to come and lead this, this rebellion against the evil Roman Empire and put us back on top. And God didn't show up the way they thought he would show up. See, see the gospel is different. The, the gospel is about a man so cursed by God that he hung on a tree on a cross. And when the unbelieving Jews would hear that, it was just it was crazy talk. Crazy talk. Why? Because of their false expectations. Now think about us. We, if not careful, put a lot of false expectations and demands on God. There's reasons why at times if you're a Christian, we don't trust God fully. And if maybe you're not a Christian, there's a reason why we don't trust him at all. It's because we have our demands and our expectations. God, you must do this, and, and then I follow you. God, you must show up in my life in this way. God, you must give me you know, the job I want, or you must give me the marriage I want, or God, you must heal my marriage right now. Or we have all these demands upon God, and when God doesn't do what we want, as Christians, we just kind of back off. We're like, well, God must not be good. Maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you, you would say, well, I'm not going to follow God because he's not doing what I want him to do. Let, let us be reminded we are not God, are we? God is God, and it's his rule, and it's his authority, and it's his reign on our 
life. I can only imagine the unbelieving Jews at that time when Jesus steps on the scene, their expectations start to rise. And all of a sudden they were let down because Jesus didn't do what they thought. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died in their place. And they wanted, no, we wanted, we wanted someone to come and, and defeat the Roman Empire. It's a false expectation that really clouded their view of the cross. Let's, let's talk about the Greeks. Look back at verse 22. For the Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. So, so this is the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Um, the Greeks, they weren't looking for signs and wonders. Uh, they prefer to use reasoning and judgment to attain knowledge of God. In our culture, it would be power and influence. And that tends to be um, people in Hollywood, people who are famous. Uh, it would be more like sports athletes, um, people who performed well in athletic stadiums. They would be the ones that we would ascribe a lot of power to. But uh, in that time period, the people who were esteemed the most were the public orders. They would be the people uh, who, who would have rhetoric, who pe the people who had uh, um, great speech and go out and wow the crowds with their wonderful superfluous words. That would be the people that they would, um, they would be enamored with and they would love the most. And so uh, they would seek them out. They would go to them for wisdom. They would want their wisdom to come from them because they thought, well, that's where the power is at. That's where influence is at. I want that type of wisdom. So think about that. Logically, no sane person is looking to embrace a gospel that has a cross in it that could potentially land them on death rows. Death row, okay, that's saying, that, that would land them basically figuratively and potentially literally dead. That's not how wisdom works, is it? They're seeking wisdom from the world. That's what the Greeks would do. They, they want to have their knowledge from the world, and yet in the worldly standard in that time period, the cross was not smart. The cross, the cross was not wise. And when we think about wisdom, we want to live wisely, not a bad thing, but we think wisdom is supposed to help us, not to hurt us. And the worldly wisdom he's talking about there would end up hurting them. So we're like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. If I were to follow Jesus, this is going to hurt my life. So they would see the cross, the Greeks would see the cross, and they would think, you know what, that's not a promotion in life. That ends up being a demotion, potentially a death sentence, culturally, socially, and maybe even in their lives as well. They wanted a brand new wisdom, and the cross was not good enough for them. I was reading a commentary on this, and the writer said this, the gospel is not some new wisdom, not even a new divine wisdom. For wisdom allows for human judgments and evaluations of God's activity, but the gospel stands as a divine antithesis to such judgment. Now watch this. No mere human in his or her right mind or otherwise would have dreamed up God's scheme for redemption through a crucified Messiah. It's too preposterous, too humiliating. Holy speculation here, if I will, from the text. Perhaps one of the reasons why the Greeks, who would be the most affluent, who'd be the most um, in with the times, the most socially elite, perhaps the reason why they would not follow Jesus is because of the humiliation it would cost them. It was going to be humiliating. If I follow Jesus, it's going to be like death from a thousand cuts in my life. I'm going to lose when I follow Jesus. Think about many reasons why we don't follow Jesus. If we follow Jesus... It may cost me. It may be humiliating around my social circle. It may be humiliating around my, my parents or my family. I, I may lose power and influence when it comes to my jobs. I know in the States, uh, to follow Jesus at your workplace sometimes can, can cost you quite a bit. Uh, you may be asked to do some things that are uh, not of character or not of integrity. 
And in order to keep your job or to be promoted, you have to do those things. But when you follow Jesus, that's the point where you start to say no. And it may cause a public ridicule within your workplace. You may be demoted. You may be fired. These are the things that are happening now where we're at. See, following Jesus will bring about some sort of humiliation in your life. It will do it. Why is that? What is the symbol of Christianity? You can say it out loud. Cross. Cross. We, we live in a world where we think the cross means, you know, something favorable, and which it does when we, know to, when we know Jesus, but what does a cross really represent? Death. Our call is to go and die. When we trust Jesus, when we follow Jesus, Jesus is going to kill some things in our life. He may kill our social life. He may kill your sex life, your financial life, your thought life, your comfortable and convenient life. But here's what he's doing. He may kill all your little lives to give you his life. And his life is where we find true life. Think about it. As Americans, one of the greatest things we prize is comfort. We hate to be inconvenienced. Are Irish people like that as well? Oh, we hate, Americans, we hate to be inconvenienced. Uh, We were the other day with uh, Davey and Beth. Yeah, we were with them the other day. And we were asking them, uh, we were helping them move in in their housing and we asked, why, why do you want to, like, was something wrong with your other house? And like, oh, no, no, the other house is perfect. We wanted to move here. Why? We want to be closer to the church, closer to our community of brothers and sisters. We want to be missional in the area in which we live. And so we decided to come move over here. And, and, and for, just to be honest, for, for an, our American mind, it's like, like, wait, what? Why, why, why would you, what? that doesn't make sense whatsoever. And it's, what, what that is is, it's dying a little bit for the sake of the gospel. It's dying a little bit for the sake of the good of the kingdom and the good of the community around us. It's just, it's just a lovely thing to hear. Let me keep going in the text because Paul's going to say even more. Verse 23, he says this, but we, so he talked about what they preached. They wanted wisdom. They wanted these signs. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly, there it is again, to the, to the Gentiles. A stumbling block to your false expectations and demands of the Jews. Folly to the Greeks because they're probably afraid of humiliation there. He keeps going, verse 18. Or I want to go back to verse 18. He says this, For the word of the cross is folly, that's where he says it again, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He keeps pointing us back to the cross. He's going to talk about the cross here in a minute again. The whole point of this section is the cross. Um, in our culture, the cross is kind of viewed as very sentimental. Uh, most people in our culture, they'll have a cross on their homes. Is that something here that people have crosses in their homes, like hanging on their walls? People have cross jewelry. Do you guys wear cross jewelry? Is that not a thing or is that a thing? Well, I, so I know your landscape's a bit different than America, but in America, everyone, like people who are not affiliated with Christianity whatsoever, wear crosses all the time. They will get crosses tattooed on their bodies and not have a clue of what it means. Now, to try to understand what the cross meant in their time period, it's hard for us to understand that because it was so offensive. So let me illustrate it like this. Um, uh, Imagine you're going to a dinner party, okay? And you arrive at this home, first time you've been at this home, you've just met these people at workplace or within your community, and you're going to their home for a dinner party. And you go in, and the the smells are wonderful. There's candles lit. There's a fire lit because it's always cold in Ireland. (laughs) I'm from Las Vegas where it's like 110, and once it gets below 60, it's cold here. But anyway, there's a fire cracking. I don't even know if I use cracking right. Yeah? (laughs) 
it's a great thing. And you smell, you know, you smell the Irish stew of roast and potatoes and all that just cooking. It's a wonderful thing. And all of a sudden, you're there with, maybe you're there with your spouse or a significant other or a family member, and you start to whisper with one another, like, hey, do you see that in a corner? You look over in the corner, you're like, oh my gosh, why do they have one of those? And what you notice in the corner is they have an electric chair. Do you know what an electric chair is? A form of uh, corporal punishment, is what, uh, death penalty. Okay, so, and so you're sitting there with your friend, and you're like, oh, my gosh, they, they have a, an electric chair over there. Why in the world would they have such an offensive tool of death? That's so odd. And then all of a sudden, the couple that invited you over, they noticed that you're sitting there kind of talking about their electric chair. and like, oh, what's, what's wrong with our electric chair over here? We, we love our electric chair. We sing songs, oh, the wonderful electric chair. I mean, like, they sing, they love their electric chair. And you, we're just sitting there thinking, hey, there's no power in the electric chair. And we're like, well, I hope there's really no power in the electric chair. <laughs> but you, you would look at them and like, that's the, you would leave. You were like, that's the craziest thing. Why would they, are they sadistic? Like, why do they care about this electric chair? That's the same way back in the first century when Paul's addressing them, the people would talk about this cross would be the same way as having an electric chair set up in your home. It would make no sense to them whatsoever. They would have nothing to do with the cross. C.S. Lewis, which I found out, was born in Ireland. Isn't that great? I didn't know this. He said it like this. He said, it is hardly complimentary to God that we should choose him as an alternative to hell. Yet even this he accepts. The creature's illusion of self-sufficiency must, for the creature's sake, be shattered. And trouble or fear of trouble on earth, by crude fear of the eternal flames, God shatters it, unmindful of his glory's diminution. I call this divine humility because it's a poor thing to strike our colors to God when the ship is going down under us, a poor thing to come to him as last resort to offer up our own when it's no longer worth keeping. If God were proud, he would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. Now watch. He stoops to conquer the cross is this picture of God stooping. You know, stoop is to bow, like God coming down. To, he stoops to conquer. He would have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him, and come to him because there is nothing better now to be had. That God would take us on that term, that he would stoop, and the cross is the greatest picture of God stooping on our behalf. Verse 24. But... There's our transition to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So he talks about those who are called, and the idea is that we are called like from death to life. Not like we're called down the street. No, no, we're called from the grave to the living. He says, oh, this is the power and wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Cross may look foolish and weak to the world, but it's wiser and stronger. It's, like, it's the idea that we can't outsmart God. We will never be wiser than him. We can't outthink. We will not be too clever for God. God, God will meet us at every turn. And then Paul keeps drilling this down, verse 26. He says, now, I want you to imagine again, he's there standing, someone's standing there reading this letter out to the church. You would be hearing this for the first time, and he's addressing you personally, okay? So you've got to kind of picture that in your mind. It makes sense. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Now, he's trying to remind us that we're a part of the family of God, that we're brothers and sisters together. And so he's reading this from the church. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. It's not very flattering, is it? 
Imagine people sitting there and looking at someone like, that's true of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not many were powerful. And someone would look over to them. Yeah, you're not very powerful either. Not many were of noble birth. Paul is saying, take a sober look at yourself. It's a ragtag bunch. Now, I don't know you personally. I'm sure you're the best. You're the bee's knees. You're the finest for sure. But he says right here that take a look around. You're not the greatest. You're not the best. You're the weakest. You're the least. You're the last is what he says here. Now, why would he say that? Well, the Corinthian culture was built upon a meritocracy, meaning you are what you do. And so you're, you're known and your status and your identity and your value comes from what you do, not who you are. And that's opposite of the gospel. So back then, there were people of noble birth um, and people who were not of noble birth. And what he's telling them that the, the people of Corinth are not of people of noble, noble birth. Um, for instance, think of it like this. Uh, in the city of Corinth, you had a lot of games. Uh, imagine them uh, were like uh, gladiator games. You've probably seen the uh, Russell Crowe gladiator movie. Are you not entertained? Have you seen that movie? Do you watch movies? Okay, cool. All right. And, and so um, people of noble birth, they were of power and influence, and they would go and they would purchase people who were not. Uh, and then they would put them in the gladiator arena, and if they were to, to live lots of battles... Uh, they could kind of rise up in the ranks. They could really prove their worth, their identity and value. They could work really hard and become someone. And then later on, if they were to win many, many, many battles, they would be like celebrities in culture to where they were not noble, but now because of their work, because of their survival skills, because they had fought really well and lived, um, they would become the noble. And Paul, what he's trying to do here, he's trying to kick the legs out from underneath of them to think that they did anything whatsoever to save themselves, that they had any hand in their salvation whatsoever. Now, for, again, for the American sensibility, we don't like this whatsoever. We want to think that we are self-made people and that we can make ourselves and we can do great things. Listen, listen, we're Americans, not Americanots, and we just feel like, hey, we, I don't know, you Irish cans and Irish can I don't know what that looks like for you. But we feel like that we can do anything and be anything if we work hard enough and we can achieve these things. Paul's reminding, like, no, 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 no. You have no status whatsoever before God. If we were to go to God and unroll our spiritual resume of all of our good works, it would be nothing whatsoever. We contribute Nothing to our salvation. I'll take that back. We do contribute something to our salvation. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. That's it. God, God does everything on our behalf. And so he's trying to kick the legs out from underneath of them that you've achieved this or you were the best. And the reason why God chose you is because he looked down from heaven and said, oh, there's a winner right there. No, 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 no. God finds the losers. God finds us. There's no achievement in us that would, that would merit God to save us whatsoever. He's reminding them like the only way that we may be saved, the only power of God to us is through the cross, not through our works, not a scrap of our works at all, that we are, we are nobodies. In that culture, you wanted to be a somebody. We're the nobodies, but we're known by the somebody. We're known by God. Look, look at verse 26 again. He talks about this, this achievement, and I think he's going to start talking about power here. For your, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In, in the Greek culture, wisdom and power, status was the power 
who you, who you knew was, was power. Uh, in that culture, pride was a big deal, that if you were a superhero or if you were a great athlete, uh, you would kind of push down the poor and push down the weak, and you would try to climb the backs of others to be more powerful, more prideful, and you would boast about your, your, you know, how strong you are and how amazing you are. And then all of a sudden, they see this one called Jesus, and they're telling people that Jesus is the most powerful, and Jesus is God, and Jesus is the one with everything, and yet they would look to Jesus, and they would say weakness. They would see not Jesus as a winner. Jesus goes to the cross. He's captured. Winners are not captured. Powerful people are not captured. They would see Jesus going in, dying on the cross. And they would say, winners are not dying on a cross. No, 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 not whatsoever. We see that in that, that's the, the weakness of God is strong. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. God is more interested in the weak than in the strong. He's more interested in those who recognize their weakness than in those who seek to prop themselves up by their own power or their own prize or their own accolades. To look at the cross from a purely human perspective where power and wisdom and achievement is prized, God's way looks weak. The cross, this instrument of death that, that Jesus would go to. That. Do you, I just want to make sure we hear that. Do you hear the strangeness of the gospel? Do you hear the countercultural nature, not just in their time period, but in our time period as well? Why, why did God go about it this way? I think verse 29 helps us with this. He says, all this happens so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This empties, empties us of the power to save ourselves. The only power will come through God. The only boasting that will be had will be in God. Maybe some of you, I don't, I don't know you, but maybe some of you, you come in here today, you're curious about the church, you're curious about God, Bible, Jesus, maybe you've heard a little bit about it, maybe you've grown up in families where this is a little bit talked about, but you've not really understood or you've not really trusted. Um, maybe your thought of the reason why I don't trust Jesus, the reason why I haven't been saved, the reason why I haven't become a Christian is because I feel like I need to get my life in order I need to get my things straight before I come to God. And I just want, I want to encourage you in that, that that's, that's foolishness, the Bible says. It would be like getting cleaned up before you take a shower. Just, it just wouldn't make sense. That, that you come in weakness. You come to him because he is the one with power. He is the one with strength. Why? So we cannot boast in ourselves. Listen, we're probably smart people. We're probably very powerful people, very influential people within this room. And yet we come to God with nothing in our hands. Naked we come to him. So there's no boasting. Any boasting we have whatsoever is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me keep getting to the end of this. Verse 30. And because of him, you are in Jesus Christ. Now let's pause. This will be a, a call and response. Because of who? Let me, okay, that was your cue. You had one job. Here, I'll try again. Because, <laughs> because of who? Him. Right. It's because of him we are now in Christ. And if you're in Christ, there is no out of Christ. So if you're a brother and sister in Christ, if you've been redeemed by Jesus, you've been saved, you're in Christ. You're in the hand. No one can snatch you out from the hand. Good news of the gospel there. You're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, 
righteousness. So we have this right standard. We have the, the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to us. It's been imputed to us is the word. And we have sanctification. We've been set apart for him. And we have redemption. We've been redeemed. We've been pulled out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of light. Now, I, I think, um, let me go on verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, when we get to the last first five verses within this text stream, I think Paul is really starting to, to, to really hammer out this cross. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now look at verse 22. This is going to help us right here. Or verse uh, 2. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the lay of the land then, it was all about rhetoric, it's all about, we, we call it in the States, we call it razzle-dazzle. It's all about just the fluff and the amazing words and the engagement. Paul says, nah. All I know is Jesus and him crucified. We want to go deeper in our Bibles. We want to go deeper in our theological understandings. Those are great. But listen to me. Here's the greatest and deepest theological truth you'll ever know. Jesus and him crucified. The greatest and deepest theological statement you ever need to know is this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. You can dwell upon that for the rest of your days and, and do well. Do well. Uh, David Brainier says it like this. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified. And I found that when my people, talking, he was a church leader, when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. You're not going to get five steps to your best life now or here's ten ways to get out of this or that. No, no, no. The cry of the Bible, the cry of the Word of God is to look to Jesus. Look to him and him crucified. You want life change? Look to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. Verse 3, and I was with you in weakness. So Paul gets very vulnerable here. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. And let me tell you, as a preacher, thanks be to God on that right there. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit, of the Spirit and of power. Demonstration of God's work. Seeing transformed lives. Seeing transformed men, women, boys, and girls of God. Seeing it with their own eyes. Why is that? So that your faith, because remember, the whole argument before this, some people were like, I follow Paul, I follow Paul, I follow Peter. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Listen, we love Pastor Andrew Elder, but don't get hung up on him. He wants you to look past him. He wants you to see the Savior that he knows. Hang and cling to that one as well. So perhaps, perhaps through this message, perhaps through the Spirit of God, maybe, maybe you've seen some areas of life to where, you know, I, I've allowed the, the cross of Jesus to kind of take a back seat. I'm a little bit more a concern with myself and my comfort or my power or my achievement. Maybe I've been boasting a bit much in myself. Listen, here's the remedy to that. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. I'll say this as well. Perhaps you're in this room, and it's not by mistake. It's not by accident whatsoever, and you do not know Jesus. You are here today to know Christ and to know him crucified. You're here to know the resurrected Savior who gives life. And so my encouragement and my challenge to you is why not trust Jesus today, that you would, you would surrender your life, that the Bible says repent, which means, it's a positive word, which means to turn, to turn from your ways, 
and trust Jesus. You've heard the good news. You've heard there's this one who created. You've heard that we've just made a mess of everything. You've heard that Jesus is the one that God promised that will clean this mess up. He cleans it up with his blood on the cross. You've heard that he's the one who defeated the grave, sin, Satan, and death. You've heard that he's ascended 40 days later. You've heard that he awaits to return to redeem all things and to make all things right. Why not trust him with your life today? And as you do that, be baptized. These waters do not save you, however, they show, they show that you belong to Jesus. This, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, that I belong to Jesus. That is your marker in life that declares, I belong to Jesus, and I belong to people. And the people I belong to are my brothers and sisters in Christ. The people I belong to are the church. So as I pray, right where you sit, if God is calling you to that, I, I want you to talk to Andrew in a moment. Let him know, like, I, I want to trust Jesus today. I want to be saved by God today. And jump in that water. Let me pray for us.